of Christ See the mercy in his eyes Every valley shall be lifted high Now our enemies are blessed And the happy laid in rest For his judgment is love His judgment is love morning good morning welcome again to trinity heights hope you all had a great thanksgiving um this morning it is my privilege to welcome our friend chris lawrence uh, chris and i have known each other since 2015 isn't that right we were on a course together a church planting course with city to city which is the sort of the redeemer's church planting sort of wing and i always say the best thing that came out of that course were the relationships and especially the the friend, my friendship with with chris uh, chris it's great to have you here this morning um chris and naomi are part of uh, a really interesting group called inner change and uh, they are sort of like a monastic community right here in the city and what this monastic community this monastic way of life in this city called interchange are doing is they're calling us to a different way of life which isn't grasping and grabbing at power prestige and position so instead of this constant climb to the top uh, in many ways there's this sort of working our way down the ladder in, instead and, and chris it's, it's always uh, inspiring to have you here looking forward to, to you speaking this morning thank you so much for having me back it's nice to be here really here not just on a screen and uh, for those of you that are listening on the podcast, it's good to have you with us too, so we remember you. Um, we've got this remarkable story. I mean, last week, Stephen, uh, I listened in, Stephen was talking about the way that uh, the long list of names that kicks off the Gospel of Matthew and the extraordinary inclusion of people that wouldn't normally be expected to be in a list like that, and the four women. Do you remember them? Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, who's Bathsheba. And, you know, it's significant that in a patriarchal society where mostly men rule with unchallenged power relationships and a lot of violence, the arrival of the Christ child, it brings a, a really massive interruption to life as, as normal and subverts the recognizable patterns of behavior and power and the categories with which we see the world. So Matthew brings into his beginning of the gospel and his opening chapter the names of extraordinary people who are the, the four women. <clears throat> and then in Luke, which is where we are today, Luke includes two women and puts a lot of focus on two women who are, again, giving us a clue that we should pay attention. If women are involved, something unusual and subversive is happening. It seems to be the message, the code. Look out, there's women around. So we get the focus on women who seem to be uh, almost a deliberate signal that the world is turning and it will be women who are the first to catch sight of this, like a rim of gold uh, of a new dawn crowning the horizon, the edge of the horizon, and seeing a new world rising and coming to light. Isn't that a beautiful image that, um, that we've got here? Mary is one of the women, and Elizabeth is the other, her cousin. Mary comes to her cousin Elizabeth, the mother, as we know, of John the Baptist. So a woman who shouldn't have been pregnant because of her age, that's Elizabeth, and a woman who shouldn't have been a mother because she becomes pregnant when she hadn't been married. 
That's Mary. And these two women find each other a 10-day walk from Nazareth in the hills at the edge of Jerusalem. Now, obviously, at this time of the year, we think a lot about Mary and Joseph and a donkey making a journey. Everybody knows that story, but not enough people know this is a story of Mary's journey as a pregnant woman in search of sisterhood. And she finds it. I love this story of sisterhood in the hills above Jerusalem. You know, for many years, um, it doesn't get enough attention at Christmas, but for many years over in East Harlem on 104th Street, we, put, we pitched a tent inside uh, a church. And for that, at this time of so week, the first week of December, we would then spend a whole night in prayer, or most of a night in prayer. We'd project the images of women, maybe a dozen or 20 women. Some of them belonged to that neighborhood in East Harlem, and some of them were people that we'd heard about just through uh, news percolating through. And they were all women who resembled, in some way, Elizabeth or Mary. Because of this remarkable, um, gutsy ability to bring through their own lives and sacrifice, something to, hap- something to birth, you know, not literally, but metaphorically, bring something to birth in less than ideal circumstances. We prayed for women on that night in memory of Elizabeth and Mary who found each other. So it was like a sort of a little cell of sisterhood. We lit candles and we did things that probably you're not supposed to do with fabric in a building, but anyway, we made it a prayer event. Women called to take risks, bringing life to others, Witnessing to life, even in circumstances that were most dangerous and the most difficult places to live and to flourish. And every year we cycled through different names of different women and we put their pictures up and we told their stories. This story of Elizabeth greeting Mary as two sisters in a time of crisis with daunting new responsibilities ahead of them is at the very beginning of our Christmas story And I want us to give it attention. I'm going to use three Ps. Pursue people is the first phrase with Ps in it, right? I'm sorry about the predictability. Pursue people. The journey of Mary to reach her distant relative is a call to friendship and intimacy. And You know, we are more connected than ever and yet at the same time more lonely especially with the disruption of the pandemic and the fact that we are suspicious of bodies together in the same room. We're more connected, but we're also more isolated. We have more opportunities to network, but we're less generous with our time to be with each other in a slow deepening of friendship. And somebody said, solidarity, it needs to be something we learn. It's not just common sense. Solidarity is a learned behavior. And I don't believe that we emphasize enough the role that friendship is intended to play in the way that we grow and develop. So Mary comes to the actual home of Elizabeth, and the baby inside Elizabeth, who we know is going to be John the baptizer, is kicking inside Elizabeth's belly, and the two women laugh and hug. They're united in such a physical and bodily way It's like almost an icon. If you imagine that image of the two women, that's there presented to us to reflect on about intimacy and friendship. So who are the people that you and I are to pursue? 
to go out of our way to be with, to spend long enough with, to be vulnerable with each other, long enough to be heard. Who are those people? Because it will take a deliberate intention and it will mean that we are pursuing those above and beyond just brief acquaintanceships, which is what we can also fill up our lives with. Casual friendships or deeper relationships of intimacy. So that's the first P, is pursue people. If nothing else, this story is about intimacy and friendship and the way that the Holy Spirit wants to use that in forming us. It's also about places. Finding and protecting places in our lives. You know the hills above Jerusalem, which is where they went? It's where Elizabeth lived, and it's the place to which Mary traveled over maybe two weeks in early pregnancy. And it's possibly the same as the place that we call nowadays Ain Kerem, which is just southwest of Jerusalem. And it's a place of springs and cypress trees and shade, and it's about a thousand feet or more further up in the hills than Nazareth, which is you know, where Mary came from either walking or riding 80 miles away. Why travel? Mary needed Elizabeth at this moment of her vulnerability, and she needed a place to be with her. And we also are in need of places. You know, my own story includes a lot of bereavement and grief, and I lost my wife to cancer when I was in my 40s, and at that time, I needed a place to go to. And so I remember uh, so many times, maybe five or six times, I used to leave my inner city neighborhood of Hackney in East London in England, and I'd get on a train and go 300 miles north to the Northumbria coast and then get in a cab and cross over to an island that was a tidal island. It was connected by a a slither of land which got covered by the waves at high tide. So I would go there and get onto this island that was called Lindisfarne, and it would be as if I was being put to bed Because just as I get onto the island, the tide would rise and the road would be cut off and it'd be 12 hours of no contact with the mainland. Um, And it was a remarkable experience because it was a place that was associated with the great saints of Cuthbert and Aidan and other Celtic monks. And it was remarkably uh, this feeling of being somehow surrounded by a blanket of sea or being put to bed under a wet comforter. It doesn't really work, does it? But it's, it's this idea of somebody else takes over your life and puts you there. And it was restorative. And I think that we really, really need a place. It may not be as exotic as an ancient island off the coast of England, but you need a place. I've got the North Woods. Where have you got? I've got the Central Park North Woods, which are not as tranquil as they used to be as they're now doing the demolition of Lasker Pool that starts at, what, half past six in the morning. But you need a place. We need a place where we can go, which is where we can then become settled and offline. Our lives are so filled up. Our lives are lived so much in our heads. We're so connected all the time that we need to physically get ourselves away and switched off and switched open to God and the Holy Spirit. So I'm rather opportunistically using the story about Mary and Elizabeth to say, we need a place to go to. It may not be 80 miles away. It might be just in your own apartment, but you need somewhere that you can say, this is where I am available. And then the final P is really the one that I want to think about, and I've been struggling with this as to how to say it simply, and it's to do with patience. Not only do we need people, and not only do we need places, but we need this quality of patience. See, the moment when the baby 
was kicking in the belly of Elizabeth, Mary erupts in a song of praise, and it's a personal testimony of this young woman who is just becoming pregnant and starting to experience her life being taken over. And it's her personal testimony, but it rapidly transitions into a global statement about the course of history. You know, God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. It switches from the context of the baby in her belly to the fate of world history and effortlessly Mary seems to transition from her personal testimony to a claim that God has intervened and is turning the world the right way up again. And remember, it's a society where perhaps only 2% of the population at that time had, it, had more than enough, and 98% were living at poverty level, eking out an existence. And yet, Mary sees God doing something in her pregnancy that only the prophets of old would dream about. So she is a prophet, and she is, if you like, woke. She sees the world turning, and she is the first to catch glimpse of that, as I said before, that, that rim of gold, which is the dawn of a crowning of a new horizon, of a new world. She is the first to see it. But what, this is the thing that I've struggled with, what do we do with such extravagant claims? It's a long time since Mary has this song on her lips. And it feels really hard for us to look over the last 2,000 years and say, yeah, we get you, we get it, we understand. It's very hard for the penny to drop. The, the, the extravagant, generous claims that she makes about God putting the world right is something that we too can chime in with. And so often the church and Christian communities all over the place have tried to sort of soft pedal it and say, right, well, it's basically about God doing a process of extracting our souls from the mess of the world to get us to a place of much better life. So it's all, the Christmas story is really not about changing history. It's about extracting souls from our messed up world and so that we can eventually get home safe and sound. And I do not believe those are the priorities that Mary is presented to us with. She has this passion for seeing the way the world is going, changing direction, radically and revolutionary. And we can just say, but I don't see how, can't you? Can't I say? We just don't see how this matches up. How a baby arriving in a forgotten corner of an empire is supposed to carry such relevance or be so subversive for the way that power and wealth and violence just get things done in the world and hold the world in its predictable course. Mary's song, which talks so assuredly about powerful institutions and the super wealthy power brokers being dethroned and the ones at the bottom of the global economy, the ones, ones the, least, the least likely being brought into unprecedented privilege, permanently elevated, given back the reins of power. 
You know what helps me, it may help you, that Mary's song is presented as being her spontaneous improvisation, right, that she just comes up with. But actually, it's more likely, some would say, that it was a community song. It's one of the earliest examples of a Christian hymn that was born in that neighborhood, in that area of small towns and hamlets. And it was done over generations so that actually the song that we now put on her lips was a community effort. And what makes, it what makes me feel better about that is that we know that that community on the edge of Jerusalem witnessed the most horrific brutalities. Because in 66 there was an uprising and then the Romans under Tiberius, they came along and they suppressed it viciously under Titus, not Tiberius. And so they put it all down, they ransacked the city, they burnt the city and they, they pulled the temple down. And yet there was a community just a few miles from Jerusalem that was remembering the story of Mary and her arrival and was singing or making a song that was all about the opposite. The song was created by Christians who knew at first hand just how ugly and violent the world could be. So we are not to be passive, but we are to be patient. And this revolutionary patience is something which I think Advent is really trying to help us to form as a community. Because we know that Jesus is king of a world where the poor really are God's favorites. And yet we do not see it happening yet. We know there is a new world coming where the ones whom society shames and the ones that we choose to ignore or even blame for their situation in life and their predicament are the ones who will get a break and who will get a permanent elevation. But we do not see it happening yet. But we do have a song and we do have a young woman who sees in her own body changing shape and the risks entailed in bringing life into the world in less than ideal circumstances, she sees in that a sign of God's willingness to commit. So I believe that we have an opportunity to say that although we are going to witness so much horror and so much that seems to be contradicting this type of rumor of God at work in the world, we cling on to this woman's story and we cling on to this story of two women meeting and a song coming out of it and say this is our work to be done, is to live as patiently with the, strong, the strongest emphasis that we can have on God's willingness to come to our world. God uses our bodies. God uses you and me in our struggles to grow in us the life of Jesus for our world. The reversals of the Magnificat, which is what we call this song, the Magnificat, the reversals are somehow to be practiced in a thousand small gestures by ordinary, patient people. The poor see themselves so often in the mirror of the rich, and they feel they will never be good enough. Sorry. Never be good enough or successful. And our job in a thousand small gestures is to be the mirror to the poor so that in us they see love looking at them back. And they see the mirror of Jesus' love looking through us to them. And that is the patient work we need to do. God was being smuggled into the present order of things, even though it was so unequal. 
And nevertheless, God comes through her body. And in the same way, we too need to let our bodies be available and say to God, can we do this in a thousand small gestures and be the sign of you coming to this world? I'm just going to conclude with a couple of quotes. And one is one I came across this morning from Richard Rohr, who some of you might have read or heard of, Franciscan. And he says this, Come, Lord Jesus, which is the Advent mantra. It means that all of Christian history has to live out of a kind of deliberate emptiness, a kind of chosen non-fulfillment. Perfect fullness is always to come, and we do not need to demand it now. The theological virtue of hope keeps the field of life wide open and especially open to grace and to a future created by God rather than by ourselves. That is exactly what it means to be awake, as the gospel urges us. We can also use other A words for Advent. Aware, alive, attentive, alert are all appropriate. But Advent is above everything else a call to full consciousness and also a forewarning about the high price of consciousness. Because when we demand or hope for satisfaction from one another, when we demand any completion to history on our terms, when we demand that our anxiety or dissatisfaction be taken away, saying as if it were, why weren't you there for me? Why didn't you do this for me? Why didn't life do that for me? We are refusing to say, come, Lord Jesus. We're refusing to hold out for the full picture that is always still being given to us by God. Hopefulness is about saying, the way the world looks doesn't look hopeful, but I'm going to believe. I'm going to watch the evidence change. It's not about wistful thinking or optimism. It's about digging down and saying, we have the resources to understand that the truth is God is king. The truth is that Jesus has come. Hope is the posture and patience is the work. You know, Mother, uh, Dorothy Day and the Catholic Worker Movement, who started in New York in the 1930s, they lived their lives with two types of behaviours. They were deliberately anti-war, which was a very tricky thing to do through that era which included the Second World War. They would sit out on benches in the street when everyone else was going down underground for the, for the, for the Cold War uh, practice sessions of how to survive a nuclear catastrophe. They would deliberately get fined for, for refusing to participate in that. So they had this big, ven this big venture of, like, we want to be anti-war and pro-peace. But they also cared in detail within the context of their houses of hospitality through the lives of people that were homeless or street homeless or had no way of belonging. So they had this detailed approach to focusing on one person at a time. And one of the, one of the things that she was inspired by was the idea that love can easily become sentimentality. And so I'm going to end with this quote by Dostoevsky, which she, she loved as well, and it's this. Love in action is a harsh and a dreadful thing compared with love in dreams. Love in dreams is greedy for immediate action, rapidly performed and, and in the sight of all. Men will even give their lives if only the ordeal does not last long but is soon over, with all looking on and applauding as though on the stage. But active love is labor and fortitude. Love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing. 
Patience is what we need to learn to do at this Advent stage and say, if we know that the world is turning, but it's not happening yet, then love that we need to cultivate with each other is this type of patient, persistent love. Thank you for Elizabeth and Mary and that story of what happened in the hills of Jerusalem. Let's please not forget it. It comes around every Christmas and we should really be there with them. I'm just going to pray together. Lord, we thank you for a story that is as simple as two women meeting and greeting each other and being together for many months. The song that we call the Magnificat that came out of that encounter and leaves us feeling confused and bewildered sometimes because we cannot see it in the world. We cannot see those grand claims coming true. So Jesus, we stand before you again and just say, let it be. The same words that Mary used before the angel. Let God's version of the world be. Let this kingdom, Jesus, be. Come here and come now and in and through my body, through my ordinary patient actions. Come, Lord Jesus.